Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley. And my name is Jay Swords. This is the podcast segment of the show that's not broadcast on Station KLA. Our guest for this 413th show is Dr. Scott Skull, professor of anthropology at State University of New York, Cortland. We're going to be talking about experimental archaeology as participant observation, a perspective from medieval food. Our history buffs are Terry Toppler and Ed Broders. And Ed, why don't you start us off? Thanks, Jay. Scott, we know that the technology for analysis has improved by light years since this field first opened up in the 70s. but how, how often do you find uh, residue that you can have analyzed? Um, is it every tenth dig or every third dig, or do you just find something at every dig? Well, it depends on, on the project. Mostly what I do is I look for work that other people have done and, um, and then just use that. So I'm not working on a, a site and say, I want to find out the residue in, in this pot. My focus is on the other end of who's done what kind of work that I can draw on to, to expand my research. So um, the, uh, the, there was a project in Cyprus where they, they did residue analysis, and I took that and I used it for, for my end of the research. So it's it all depends on the questions that those archaeologists are asking and, and quite frankly, what kind of funding they have to, to do that kind of work. But it's fairly common? In, now, it's nowadays. fairly common, yeah. Um, it's, it's becoming more common now while we have better technology, we can learn more from smaller excavations. I mean, 50 years ago, they would excavate, you know, 50 houses in an ancient city in one season. Now they'll excavate one or two houses in a season because we can get so much more information from that, that more focused excavation that we don't need to have, you know, half the city exposed. So the work that's being done tends to be more, um, more focused and and has the opportunity to do that kind of research. There's also been a lot of work that's been done at, with museum collections and and from curation facilities that they find the material and then somebody comes back with a, a new question and then they do the, the analysis at that point. Okay, Terry. Yeah, I'd like to go back, uh, Scott, and talk about the replica the replications of the clay pots or the earthen pots or ceramics that you use uh, for your class. Sure. And I'm curious, as I'm thinking about that, is there a difference in flavor depending on the type of soil one uses from that particular region that would uh, change the flavor of what you're making, like a stew and um, so on? I, 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 know, I know what you're getting at, and mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't really think so, because when you're, I mean, there might be a little bit, um, but there's so many other flavors that it, it kind of takes over. And the reason for that is when you, when you fire the pot, um, you're, you're vitrifying the, the, the clay particles. They're, mm-hmm. they're literally melting and fusing together. That's what makes it a ceramic. Mm-hmm. And so 
the the material isn't going to release much um, from the the pot that's that's going to get into the flavor of the food, particularly if you compare it to the flavor of the vegetable or the meat or the spice or the wine that's a more dominant element. Um, there is really a difference between cooking in a ceramic pot on an open fire versus cooking in your stainless steel pot on a, uh, a, an electric stove. But, you know, that there's only a little bit of that that's going to come from the ceramic vessel itself. Scott, let me kind of piggyback off of that. So flavor maybe isn't affected, but how about conductivity? Um, do different regions produce better or worse varieties of pots in terms of managing heat or or, or um, lasting longer or those kinds of things? Absolutely. Um, and it's mostly going to be about the, the firing technology and the, how the, the um, clay body is handled and things like uh, the inclusion of temper or things like that. Um, if you fire ceramic to the lowest possible temperature, it's incredibly fragile, can break very easily. If you fire it up at a higher temperature, then it'll be more robust and it'll last a lot longer. If you fire it really high, you can get it to, to stoneware temperatures if you have the right kind of clay, and it'll be fully vitrified. It'll be entirely waterproof. But it's also more prone to thermal shock, and it will break. So there's, there's a kind of a range that's really good for... Um, cooking on an open fire that it's not too fragile and it's not too vitrified, too melted, too too solid, too glassy. Um, and when you look around the world, you, you could find it in Native American pottery, you can find it in medieval European pottery, you could find it in Iron Age pottery and Bronze Age pottery and Neolithic pottery. It's all too... Uh, remarkably enough, the temperature that you can get to with a controlled wood fire. And so there's a lot of consistency within this this range of it's about a thousand degrees C that is is really a good temperature for making um, open fire cook pots. All right. Along that question, um, obviously, um, technology changes things over the, the centuries. Um, have they come across certain kinds of pottery that were created for specific dishes? I mean, as you just got done get, saying this, you have all these ranges of how long to um, heat up the pottery. Um, and my parents uh, are fantastic chefs, and they'll go out and, you know, you buy the utensil to fit the recipe that you're cooking. Right. Uh, have you come across some of them that you're like, wow, this was created for this meal? So there's, I mean, there is the just wrap a thing in clay and stick it in the fire and then break the clay off. And But I don't think that's what you're asking about. I think you're actually about, you know, shaped things. Yeah, did There's they a, discover uh, something that was very different? Like, oh, what's this? And they later find out that's why it was created. There's a, a really good example of a um, uh, a pot that, uh, an approach to pottery that we wouldn't think about that's, that is part of the, the medieval, let's make food that looks like something else approach. Um, 
where you took basically um, like meatball meat, but you stuff it in a little clay pot and you cook it in the clay pot. You break the clay pot um, after it's cooked. You dip the, the now cooked meat that's taken the shape of the inside of the pot in batter and then you cook that so that it looks like the little pot that you made it in. And then you serve it like it was a little pot, but that you get to eat it. Really? Yeah, very yeah. cool. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and, you, and you have to break it to get the meat out. Um, and that's a you know, very specific thing. I haven't found a site that says they have found that kind of okay. a vessel, but... Um, We've got it in the cookbooks, and so it's got to be out there somewhere. Yeah. Scott, you mentioned in the radio portion that there were things that we uh, that are in existence in medieval recipes that we're not even sure what they are. Um, there are also some things I'm thinking of Near Eastern um, medieval cooking uh, that uh, some of the ingredients seem to actually be carcinogenic. <laughs> <laughs> um, so can you talk a little bit about how experimental archaeology would go about trying or is trying going about trying to fill in those gaps where we have a name for something, but we're not quite sure what it is? Well, I mean, a lot of that we rely on uh, food historians. Uh, there's a, a recipe that um, has a whole list of things, and one of the the um, ingredients is listed as cook, C-O-Q. And it's like, I don't know what that is. But apparently there's this whole documentary history of somebody looking at all of the recipes in this this 14th century, late 14th century French cookbook, and they analyzed every single word. And it is um, a kind of mint. It's cock mint or, you know, chicken mint or rooster mint, um, which we call costmary. Mm, okay. By drawing on other experts, we can get answers to some of those things. Some things, it we just don't know. And, you know, it's like, as you mentioned, some things are carcinogenic. You know, if I did Roman cooking, I wouldn't be cooking with sugar of lead. Right. Um, right. So we just like, okay, we're just, we're not going to go there. Um, so, I mean, part of it is, you know, just common sense. Don't poison your friends. And part of it is trying to, to make sense of, the material we have and if we can't get an answer for it sometimes we just have to leave it out and it means that we're not exactly as the things were in the past but you know i'm wearing blue jeans when i'm doing my cooking most of the time and so that's going to be different too i'm not in a 14th century building i sleep in a you know comfortable bed that is not a 14th century bed and you know, all of those different things. So we're never going to be exactly like it was in the past. But, you know, we can get closer, and that helps us with our interpretation. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm going to throw one follow-up from that, because I'm just thinking of uh, this past summer, 
my COVID activity was translating a ninth century Arab cookbook. And it really wasn't a cookbook. It was a uh, more of a travelogue by a uh, courtier who was going from court to court and describing the dishes that he had. Um, and so my question to you is that, that he mentions things like hot spices and cool spices, and he never tells sure. you what those are. Um, now, uh-huh. you can kind of piece together because you've worked with the other kinds of cuisine. You can sort of make guesses. But at the end of the day, right. you're you're combining stuff together, and it is just a guess. And then you're seeing whether you like the taste. But, of course, your tastes are modern tastes. Um, and right. so how do you kind of, uh, as you're doing your experiment, how do you kind of uh, allow for that bias, the idea that, that we can't disengage our taste buds and our culinary history from what we're doing, even though we know it's probably not an accurate assumption. Well, that's where the more you do it, the closer you can get. So you you find recipes that that are pretty well spelled out, and you try that, and that you learn something about it. And so you try it again and something different and then you try another recipe you find maybe not in the the 14th century french cookbook but maybe the 14th century venetian cookbook will have some information that you can draw on and then you compare and you and this is that whole experience that learning by experience the more you do the more you learn um, I would guess that, you know, the hot spices they were talking about were cinnamon and cloves and things like that. Yeah, that's what I, I that's what I did. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and you know, and it turned about. out wonderfully from my taste buds. I'm just not sure if it's anything like what it actually would have tasted like to this guy who wrote the book. Well, if you're using things that are in it, it's probably going to be closer than, you know, a chicken sandwich from McDonald's. Sure. <laughs> Absolutely. We would like to thank our guest for the 413th show, Dr. Scott Stull, professor of anthropology at the State University of New York, Cortland, who talked to us about experimental archaeology as participant observation, a perspective of medieval food. The History Bus for today's show were Terry Toppler and Ed Brodus. You can listen to ROI as it's being broadcast on Friday nights on KALA HD2, 88.5 and 106.1 FM in the Quad City region at 9.30 p.m. You can also listen to the show as it's being broadcast on TuneIn.com. Put KALA HD2 in the search box and look for ROI. Many of our previously recorded shows can be heard at SoundCloud.com. Just put KALA Radio in the search and click on the first icon and scroll down to find ROI shows. You can also find ROI on all your favorite streaming platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcast, and Google Podcast. ROI is recorded at station KALA, St. Ambrose University.